This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Welcome to the latest Great Ormond Street Pediatric Bioethics Centre podcast. My name is Joe Briley. I'm introducing a podcast we actually released last year as a single episode, but we want to include in this series. So I hope you'll forgive us for that. But I, I think it's a very useful one. It thinks about consent in pediatrics and child health. And it's together with Simon Blackburn, one of my ethics centre colleagues, but also a consultant pediatric surgeon and someone obviously therefore is at the forefront of obtaining consent for fairly invasive procedures in children and young people. I hope you enjoy it. I'm delighted to introduce our guest this morning, a good colleague of mine, Dr. Simon Blackburn or Mr. Simon Blackburn. Simon, good afternoon. Hi. So we're going to be talking about consent in child health today, which is a, a pretty in-depth topic, but also hugely important. I wonder, just to get people started and interested, if you could explain your thoughts on the difference between, say, being a surgeon and being a, a common or garden paediatrician like me, what are the differences for a surgeon to start off with about how you think about how you, you practice? Um, so I, I guess in terms of the sorts of things we're discussing today, the important difference for surgeons in surgical practice is that a lot of the decision-making is centered around um, the performance of surgery and, and doing operations. And whilst we'd always hope that, that our clinical care causes no harm and does good, that there's inevitably a trade-off around surgical procedures that usually involve um, inflicting a wound on the patient and nearly always involve um, a period of recovery and pain and will also involve a period of time where the child is away from their family and parents having a procedure which takes place um, away from the normal people who care for them, and so there's a you're you're always balancing an undesirable event, um, an operation, with its attendant complications and, and risks of difficulty, um, against the the potential good that you can do the patient by operating on them. And so I think that the fact that one is always talking about and surgery as, as an event in, in the patient's care leads you to a position where some of the, the issues around consent are thrown into rather starker relief than they might be if one was making a decision about pres prescribing medicines, for example. Yeah. Thanks. I, I guess there's a, there's a nice lead from there into the difference between how most people and certainly the general medical council who have really excellent uh, guidance on this. Um, think about consent uh, in, in child health with children and young people and how I, I was taught about it when I was a, a junior doctor hundreds of years ago. Um, and we were very much junior doctors rather than trainees in those days. But consent was something you succeeded in getting on a piece of paper. And obviously that's a very, um, an old-fashioned uh, way of thinking about consent. And what do you think about the changes since then, the idea of consent being an ongoing process with children and families, given your thoughts then about surgical operations being a, a, a set thing in time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think seeing consent as a process is, a, is, has become the way people are asked to practice and do practice. And, and I think it has a significant number of advantages. Um, I think the decision to operate is often take, often takes place 
in the elective context in an outpatient clinic. Um, and the process of consent might take place before the day of surgery or on the day of surgery in the sense of the form of being filled in and signed. But there's an awful lot of information giving and sharing that is required to get a family to, to the point where they're, they're ready to consent on their child's behalf for an operation. Um, and that process does, does take some time. So clearly one is obliged to set out the, the benefits of the pr proposed surgical intervention, um, it's important to discuss any alternative treatments that might be available, whether you would recommend them or not. Um, and then to get some understanding together with the family of what the potential risks of, of the treatment would be. Um, and particularly with complex surgery and in difficult decision-making, that process can take some time. Um, mm. and the idea that consent is something that happens on the day of surgery in the half an hour between the patient coming to the hospital and going down to the anesthetic room to, to have an anesthetic is is a, is a difficult and problematic one because it, it doesn't allow the time and space for, for, um, a child and family to consider things in the way that one would hope they would want to. Great. That's very helpful. I'm, um, I'm, I'm always interested in the kind of the, the differences between consent for various things. Um, we'll come on to that perhaps towards the end, the issues I have of some of the consent processes we have on the ICU that still don't make very much sense to me. Um, I, I guess the, the thing from which is very important to talk about is in children, there are different levels of ability to provide consent. And certainly the law allows different levels of, of pediatric child health ability to consent. And obviously you mentioned earlier that very often is the parents that consent for, uh, children and young people, but as children get older, they can provide consent themselves. I wonder, I mean, we, we've talked about the ethics of this quite a few times in the committee and the idea that over 16, you're assumed to be able to consent mm. Under 16 with the Gillick judgments, you, you can prove that you can consent, but that young people cannot refuse treatment held to be in their best interest if somebody else consents for them. And I, I guess it'd just be useful to have that discussion about the ethics and what we, we often feel about that. Yeah. And of course that situation is, is different in different parts of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess. The, the, to frame this discussion, we're, we're talking about a situation where there's a movement during, um, childhood and, and young adulthood from a position where the, you have a, a an infant, um, who is clearly unable to understand what's being proposed and not in a position to have any input into the discussion. Um, and then at the other end, you've got, um, a 16 year old who is assumed to have capacity to give consent, although is not legally entitled to withhold it. Um, if those with parental responsibility think a procedure is in their best interest, and then you're moving to a, and then one moves to an adult at 18 who is assumed to, to have capacity and can refuse treatment, even if others feel it to be in their best interests. Yeah. Um, and then below 16, um, children and, and young people have the ability to demonstrate that they have capacity. Um, that they have the ability to, to withhold and, and weigh the information about a procedure, um, and consider its benefits and, and short and long-term risks. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a fact worth noting that, that capacity can exist into different degrees for different procedures and to different degree yeah. or, um, on different occasions. Um, and so a, a child or young person may be able to give consent for a very simple procedure something like an abscess drainage, 
But if one was proposing to do a, a big reconstructive operation, which might have long-term implications of fertility, they may not, not yet have capacity to, to give consent for that procedure. Um, and so it's, it's a judgment that isn't static. That's, that's really nicely explained, Simon, and, and incredibly important for us, I think, that the idea of competence is not a, a single um, entity and that, that it, it depends on what's being proposed. I and mean, that's very helpful. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? The idea that, you know, we can override um, a young person when they're 17 and 364 days and a day later to um, provide treatment without their consent is, is, is a the crime of battery sounds very stark. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's one of those situations where the law and practical reality don't necessarily marry up terribly well. So I, I guess if you're dealing with a child who has, who has capacity to give consent it's, and is vehemently opposed to a medical treatment, it would be quite difficult in practical terms to compel them to have it. Um, so, so kind of operationalizing that overcoming of refusal can, is quite challenging. You know, how do you respect the, the human rights of that, that young person whilst compelling to, them to have a treatment that they really don't want to have? Unfortunately, it's, it's not a situation that I've run into terribly often. Um, usually in the situation where, um, those with parental responsibility for the child are clear that a treatment's in their best interest and so is the treating team, then you can use a period of negotiation to overcome that refusal. Um, but it does, it does often feel a bit incongruous that, yeah. you know, you can, you have the capacity to consider what's in your best interests and we'll let you consent as long as you come up with the answer that we agree with. Um, it's very different clearly from the situation in an 18 year old where they can make a decision on a basis, which isn't necessarily felt to be sensible by those um, offering treatment or, or supporting them from a family perspective, but, but nevertheless, it is their rights to not have it. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that's really well explained. Thanks. I, I guess it's the difference between being a child and not being a child in, in some ways And the law, certainly in England and Wales currently, as far as I understand, <laughs> it is, uh, this is why I always get legal advice on these things, but very much having you as a child under the age of 18 and and i you know you see these wonderful films like the children act which i i did enjoy actually and and the book it's based on was a, a thoroughly good read too but luckily these these situations are incredibly rare in pediatrics and child health yes mm. you know the occasional child of a a child who has jehovah's witness beliefs and and his family may have the same and um, that that is the key thing that or, or the the paradigm case we may have come across but, but in most other situations, I, I consent is uh, done, done properly, appropriately with the child and, uh, or young person and their family, and they consent as a group together. It's, it's normally very, very straightforward in terms of get, getting that process to work. And the situations where there's disagreement or, or, or differences are, are very interesting. Yeah. The other little trap that's probably worth mentioning before we move on is the, the child who clearly does not have capacity because of long-term illness who turns 18 yeah. Yeah. um and and certainly that that one does come up for us in in our practice at great Ormond street quite frequently we clearly know a lot of patients who unfortunately have very significant neurological impairment and and sometimes they're still with us for procedures over the age of 18 
And it's often quite a surprise to their parents when they're told that they can't consent on their behalf at that age. Um, yeah. and that, in that situation, the, the usual practice would be to get the consent form signed by two consultants. Um, but it's, if you work in child health, that one can, can catch you out every so often if you're not live to it. Absolutely agree. And of course the argument is that really isn't consent in some ways, but it's, um, it's something that we, we really have to, um, think about because there are many children surviving with complex problems after periods during their childhood or with diseases that predominantly affect children who, who thankfully are surviving into adult life now, but often might be dependent and not reach the ability to consent for themselves. And that, and that preparation of the family and particularly the parents for a situation where having consented multiple times during childhood, they're quite surprised, as you say, at the age of 18 to no longer have that ability under law w without some sort of specific, I think it's a guardianship order, but someone will correct me, um, some sort of particular um, organizational stuff being done under law is, is quite a surprise. And I think something we could all uh, prepare young people and their families a little bit better for, to be frank. Mm. Yeah, I agree about that. So, so I guess I, moving from that, which was very interesting to, to the idea, I mean, obviously if children, young people cannot provide consent, it isn't the case that we don't bother explaining things to them. Sure. And I think probably really important. We kind of, you know, I, I think these things are again, done very, very well in, in, in most people's practice, but the idea about how you explain things to sometimes quite difficult things to young people with their families, I'm thinking about disclosure of, of difficult things. And I'll, I'll set an example for you, let's say, and I'll put a hard one because it is an ethics podcast. Um, yeah. a 13 year old who has a cancer that's come back that you're, um, seeking to do an operation that has a, a chance of working, but a good chance it won't help. And if it doesn't work, the young, the young person, she will ultimately have to receive palliative care and die in the next few months. And, and what are your thoughts? How do you manage that situation if the parents are very, very opposed to her knowing about the implications of the operation not working? And your thoughts are she's, she's a reasonably competent young lady, but probably, probably not, you know, over the age of 16 and Gillick competent. That's a discussion to be had. How do you, how do you deal with that? Cause I'm, I'm fascinated. I think it's a very tough area. Yeah. So I suppose there's some. There's some framework around the, the UN, UN Convention on Human Rights would say that the evolving capacity of a child should be respected. Um, and so it's, it's not just about, has this child got to the point where they have, they are Gillick competent for this procedure on this day and can give consent. Um, there's something about respecting their evolving autonomy. Um, and I, I think that is a very challenging situation. I think most people's experience is that it's far easier to look after, um, children and young people having operations where they understand what's going on. Um, I occasionally run into the situation with younger children in far less kind of extreme circumstances where, you know, they've been told by their parents, they're coming to the hospital for a reason other than that, that they're going to be put to sleep and have a scan. And then they'll wake up with a scar that they weren't expecting. Right. And I strongly encourage parents out of that view. Yeah. And in fact, it, it's 
something that might make me defer surgery if the surgery, if the, if the deferral of the surgery wasn't going to cause harm to the child. Um, because I, I think that child's relationship with the hospital and probably with their parents would be forever damaged if, if that were to happen. Um, that's completely right, isn't it? It's, but, but you can also, the role of the parent being a protector of their child, you can completely see why some parents might come to that conclusion. But as you say, sensible conversation about the welfare of their child and, and how their child recovers uh, and carries on coming to the hospital and being treated if that's necessary is, is, is clearly the way forward there. Yeah. And I, I think, I think in the example you mentioned, it's, it's a lot of that would be about investing time and having a conversation probably initially with the parents, um, and trying to explain what you want to tell their child, um, and getting them to understand why you think the facts are that you're going to convey are important. Um, because I, I think there's something about, um, assent as opposed to consent, which is really important. There's, there's <laughs> that... Yeah. I was, I was going to come on and ask you about that, about, um, the idea that we should seek assent from children and young people who, who cannot consent to their procedure. Yeah. To kind of demonstrate, I mean, in some ways you're demonstrating their worth and their value and, and really showing that you're, you're caring about what they think and how you're looking after them. Um, there are other views, of course, that assent is, is completely nonsense. It means nothing under law. Um, most children will be happy with what their parents decide to do. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? That's kind of, um, a flavor of how you do medicine there rather than a, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I suppose there's well, there's 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 a difference between, in some ways, between doing what is what is right and and a comp and part of comprehensive patient care and and the minimum which the law requires. Yeah, um, I think there is something about respecting children's and young people's involvement in decision making, and part of what you're doing is modelling involvement in a therapeutic relationship, which for many of our patients will continue after they become adults. Uh, clearly mm -hmm. a lot of the patients we treat have chronic illnesses, which they will be adults with, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disease is something I treat, um, reasonably regularly. And so for example, a young person with Crohn's is going to have Crohn's for their entire life. It's not sad or a disease, which we can cure at the moment. Yeah. Um, and so the more you can engage them in understanding what it is to talk to doctors and to, to engage in those sorts of conversations as, as they grow up, the more successful their relationship with their own healthcare will be as they, once they're adults. Um, yeah. and, and it's not also about, yeah. yeah. And there's something also about respecting the person of the child as a, as a yeah. unique human being who will have their own views that need to be listened to, even if the clinicians and the parents in the end, take a view that the right thing to do is not what the child wants themselves because they may have a slightly longer term view of what's going on. The fact that their views have been heard, I think is probably therapeutic in and of itself. Yeah. Good. I mean, you're almost answering the next question I was going to be, it was going to be a tough question actually, which I, I was going to enjoy asking you. It was like a mirror to the 16 year old, uh, refusal and 18 year old accepting that. So, so how do you deal with dissent from a child? uh, before major surgery, a child says, I don't want it. Don't do it to me. What, what do you do if you can't persuade a child, uh, round to that way of thinking, let's say an eight year old, a nine year old who, who quite rightly would be 
able to express their feelings, consideration, your seeking assent as, as a good clinician would, I think, yeah. parents happy to consent and want an operation that is quite clearly in the young person's best interests. How, how do you tackle that? What do you do as a, as a practical clinician? Um, I think there's something there about shifting the discussion. So clearly the first thing to do is to listen to their objections. And, and in my, in my own experience, a lot of it is these, that kind of, of refusal to assent for want of a better phrase is based in fear of what's going to happen. And people, children are worried that they're going to be in pain after the procedure's done. They don't understand what's going on. And so a lot of the, we've got some fantastic colleagues in the trust who really great at working with children about managing periprocedural anxiety um, and bringing them down to operating theatres, showing them, you know, how much care is taken of them while they're asleep, showing them all the monitoring and getting, helping them to understand kind of all of the things that are in place to, to keep them in safe and as safe and comfortable as we possibly can. And, and my own experience is that that deals with quite a lot of those children's concerns to the point where they're then kind of a bit happier with things. I think in the end, if you have a child who's had their anxiety managed to the point where it's possible to do so, the, the next thing is to sit with them and say, well, look, your parents agree, um, that this is the right thing for you. And I think this is the right thing for you. And I'm really sorry, but it's going to have to happen. So let's talk about how we can make this as easy and straightforward for you as possible. Um, and, and giving that child or young person as much control as you can of some of the variables within that process, I think m often makes it as easy as possible. Um, Excellent. so, so you do know in our podcast, whenever you come up with a really good answer like that, we push you a bit further. Sure. Um, Pr Priscilla Alderson has written some really interesting stuff and in her research team work on trying to think about consent from children far younger than most of us would would consider um able to happen and certainly younger than the law would consider yeah. for major interventions and her arguments are often i mean i, I won't do them justice because it's brilliant work and very interesting but we, we're not explaining things well enough as you've just said you take your time and if we spend long enough with children and young people and explain things in ways they can understand at their developmental age they're far more able to consent than we generally consider. Um, I, I wonder in your day-to-day -day practice, do you think that there may be an argument there that obviously there is a pressure. You're doing many operations. We're doing many interventions on sick children. Is it the fact we don't have enough time to spend with children and young people to get them to a level where they can consent? Yeah, I think that may be part of it. Um, I think some of it has to do with, um, the it's, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a nice thing of Atul Gawundi's in being mortal yeah. is itself based on another paper, the authors of which I sadly can't remember. Um, but the, there's a kind of medical decision making and interaction paradigm on the one hand, which is deeply patriarchal. You're, I'm the doctor, you're the patient. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And then a response to that, which is, um, on the other extreme, I'm going to give you a menu of options and you're the patient. So you're going to choose which one, which always strikes me as being a bit silly. And, you know, we've all spent a long time training to be where we are and have some knowledge to offer and, and should be able to guide people. Um, and then there's a, the kind of in-between position, which I, I really like, and particularly for complex decisions, 
which has to do with the starting point being, well, what do you want out of an operation? What is it that you are seeking to achieve? Um, and I think that's often an interesting place to start talking to a child about. And, you know, um, if you're proposing to do an adenotontelectomy on a child, you know, who's, I don't know, call it six or seven and you say to them, well, you know, and they keep having episodes of tonsillitis, what they, they are likely to understand the idea that they want to stop being off school and being sick and perhaps being treated with antibiotics and going to hospital. Um, and it, you can then have a discussion about how you think you can get them that benefit and then what the potential downsides and risks might be. Um, and I, th I think we're, we're often guilty of trying to treat the problem as we perceive it rather than get the child or young person a benefit which is in their own terms if that makes any sense yeah no well the reason it does and, and as i'm i think we're heading towards um the last few questions you, you're almost getting to where i was going to ask you about the the montgomery judgment and standards the uh yeah. the idea of the montgomery case a very sad case with a baby that had shoulder dystocia and the lady involved didn't feel and the court supported her that that she had uh, the reasons for a, a, a clinical suggestion of doing a cesarean section explained to her well enough that if you'd understood the implications properly, she would have uh, agreed to that happening. And obviously, not got time to go into very much more detail about the case, but mm. the idea that the standard we're seeking is is really not some sort of reasonable patient standard from the old days that you would say, well, most people would want to know this, but that we must work out what it is the patient in front of us needs to know to make their decision to provide consent for this operation. Um, and I, I guess that's where you were going with that in some ways with children. I'm, I'm not sure we've thought well enough about this or, or long and hard enough about this in pediatrics and child health. And some of the things you were saying were immediately lighting up in my ideas about things that would mean we were, um, yeah, approaching the Montgomery level of um, consent, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's really, really tough. And I, I think that the Montgomery standard in children has not been as well explored as it might be. Mm. Um, and it's, it's really difficult to, to know what this individual child's consent is, or indeed what this individual child or young person might want to know, because you don't know what their plans are. Probably neither do they at that point. So it can be really tough to, to know where the emphasis is. Um, the example I use in thinking about this quite a lot when I'm talking to people is, is of, um, several families I've met who have children with, um, spinal muscular atrophy, which is a, a life limiting neuromuscular condition, um, and in whom they have significant problems with gastroesophageal reflux and have fed by a nasogeginal tube. Um, and the discussion with, with several families I've had has been framed around should their child be offered or should their child have a, a, an anti-reflux procedure in a gastrostomy? Um, and that's a real balance because the, the, the risk of the operation is that apart from the normal attendant risks of that procedure in and of itself, the risk to that particular child of that operation is they may, um, be in a position post-operatively where they're ventilated on intensive care and extubation to their normal usually non-invasive ventilation is, is not possible. 
and so you're hastening their death and also changing their mode of death by undertaking a procedure but the potential benefit to that child and family is maybe quite significant in terms of you know how do you you know sparing them frequent visits to hospital for replacements of a nasogenal tube they're on continuous feeds which means they're committed to a pump so there's a real quality of life versus risk balance um and the way i start that conversation usually has been to say to the parents you know what what do you want for your child out of this operation um and and then to set out the ways in which that could be achieved and then to talk about the potential risks and I've seen that conversation go both ways with different sets of parents and different children in different family contexts. Um, and that feels as near to the Montgomery standard as I've ever been able to get. Um, but it, it is, it is really tough because I, in the context of more frequently occurring, more simple clinical decision-making, um, you know, that we all do procedures in high volume. I mean, for example, surgery for undescended testicles is something that most pediatric surgeons have and do do a lot of, and is associated with really, really unusual complications that most, you know, from a, from a slightly patriarchal perspective, you might say, well, it's probably better not to tell this family about the one in 1000 charts of something really unusual happening, but it equally could be argued that they might wish to know that. Um, and so managing that conversation can be quite tricky and those sorts of conversations often aren't blessed with the time that we have to give to, to more complex decisions. Yeah. So more work to be done there. That's for sure. I guess I'm going to finish off by pulling you into my world a bit of intensive care. And, um, we did a, a qualitative or mixed methods study a couple of years ago. Um, Phoebe Oberge Williams was a medical student at UCL who spent some time interviewing parents and staff on our pediatric intensive care about consent. And the paper's published in JME for those who want to look at it. Um, I think it was last November. And, and I guess they, they, it was fascinating because parents were very able to express what they thought very clearly. And it, it was interesting that their, their ideas about what was consented for an ICU and what wasn't consented for an ICU were, were very much at variance with the clinical teams. Um, and there were some odd historic things such as consenting for an MRI uh, and not a CT and you know, not consenting for continuing ventilation. And parents felt that was that was okay in terms of having an explanation from the bedside nurse a lot of the time. But they were very challenged about different standards in different units around the country as well. This is true about whether we get specific consent for a blood transfusion, for platelets, for a chest drain. And I think this whole area of Montgomery is going to pull over not just how we consent, but what we consent for in terms of ongoing explanations and how we document that. And I think that's going to be a big paradigm shift in my speciality, which I've just kind of explained to you. Do, do you think there'll be much changed in terms of surgical consent, Simon? I think, I suppose there's two things. One is the quality of the conversation that is mm. happening. The other is the quality of the documentation of that conversation. Yeah. Um, and certainly I'm very conscious in the way I write my clinic letters that I am documenting a discussion about a procedure and I have documented the risks I've discussed with the family very clearly. Um, I think, you know, there's probably a role 
more and more for generic information about things being part, you know, we've got a good series of patient information leaflets, but we could probably have a standard video on, you know, commonly, um, uh, commonly done, um, interventions on, in a context like intensive care, where the fact that that, that video has been seen and, and inwardly digested by the parents at least allows you to, to demonstrate that you've done a, a reasonable job of explaining what's going to be done. And you can then document that and then allow the parents to ask any questions that might have arisen. Um, I think the demands on staff in terms of time could be quite considerable. Yeah. As this develops, um, and we'd all love to be able to spend a lot of time explaining things to, to our parents of our patients, but sometimes clinical pressure means that it's really difficult to, to invest that kind of level of detailed discussion in every single intervention. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to go to Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists meeting I spoke at last year. Yeah. I followed on from this very, very eloquent uh, barrister. He was really talking about this and suggesting that consent should really be focused on uh, an informational video and multiple choice questions afterwards. And if you didn't, if you passed the multiple choice, that meant you were okay and had understood things. And if you didn't, well, you couldn't have the procedure and had to go for, you know, more lessons, if you like. And I, at one stage, I'm sure he's being slightly flippant, but on another, there is a practical element to this that actually in the clinical workplace, I suspect we are going to have to think a lot more about providing videos and I guess for young people, that's what they're used to seeing. I mean, they don't sit down and talk about things in sign forms and the rest of their life very often. Mm. A lot of it online and YouTube, they're way ahead of us in terms of social media and all that sort of stuff. And I do wonder whether that's the way forward. Yeah. So I videos, videos sent to your patients a week before on an MCQ, that would be uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a slight, a slight counter-argument to that, which is, you know, how do you ensure equity of access? Um, and clearly many people in our society are able to look at videos on YouTube at the drop of a hat, but some aren't. Um, and there are clearly language and other barriers to, to potentially think about getting over. They were, they were very much the main objections on the day, but, uh, yeah, it was still interesting to think about how we might have to develop smarter ways of doing this very important thing that we kind of. I think we probably do okay most of the time, but is okay enough? And that's Montgomery for you, isn't it? You have to do it perfectly well every time at a level that particular individual requires. And, and again, as you mentioned, some of the aspects around language, around trust, around different aspects of healthcare have not really been thought through in child health. So I think that's a, a, going to be a big part of our thinking in the next few years. Mm, I'm sure you're right. Good. Simon, is there anything else you wish I had asked you about consent? I'm sure there are things you wish I hadn't asked you about consent, but, uh, is there anything you think, well, why haven't we gone there or talked about that? No, I think, I think we've covered most of it. Great. So thank you very much. We'll have a, another podcast available for you next week. We will also have some references to some of the uh, papers and the, the legal aspects of consent we've talked about today which will be available as part of the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, very much for listening. And, and thank you, Simon. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 
If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts.